Friends, we are in Matthew chapter 5. If you have a Bible, please open to Matthew chapter 5 as Avery prepares to come to read. We are in a series on the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is one of the famous discourses of Matthew. It's one of the most famous sermons in all the world. It probably is the best known sermon in all the world. And conversely, it's also probably the least understood sermon in all the world. Two weeks ago, we talked about how you and I are called to be salt and light. And what does salt do in the ancient Near East? It wasn't just a flavoring. It was supposed to be a preservative. Salt goes on things that are decaying. So too, Jesus is saying that Christians, you ought to survey the decay that's going on in your life, your neighborhood, your culture, and you ought to run to it. Emotionally challenged people ought to have Dozens of Christians around them. Blighted neighborhoods ought to have dozens of Christians living in them. Why? Because it's a decaying part of our world. And so that's what we do. We move into those parts of the neighborhood. We tend to move out of them. We tend to go to only those places that are clean and pristine. But Jesus says you're salt. Salt goes on that to protect it from decaying. But now this morning, we turn our hearts toward a very important passage in the Sermon on the Mount just after he calls us to be salt and light. It's a very hard passage, so please give your attention to Avery as she reads it for us. A reading from Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray and ask God's help. Father, this is your word, and we thank you for it. It is eternal. It never returns void. And we pray that we experience that and feel the weight of your love for us through these words. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was in seminary, there was a course that we took called How to Read the Bible. It's a little insulting, don't you think, when you have a bunch of grad students going to a class called How to Read the Bible? Listen, I can read. But one of the first things the professor taught us is that there's a huge difference between knowing that you can read and knowing how to read. It's a huge difference. And when you come to this passage, it's important to know how to read the Bible. Because this is a hard passage. If we ever do a series on hard texts of the Bible, this one will undoubtedly be on it because I just want to read it again for you in case you weren't listening when Avery read. Listen to verse 18. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it's accomplished. What does that even mean? Or verse 20. For I tell you the truth, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
there's a big difference between knowing that you can't read and knowing how to read. And thankfully, Jesus takes us to school. And in these four verses, Jesus teaches us how to read the Bible because he shows us how he reads the Bible. So we're gonna look together what the Bible is, what the Bible's about, and the life that results. What the Bible is, what the Bible says that it is, what Jesus himself says the Bible is, what it is about, and what is the life that results, okay? First, what the Bible is. Look with me at verse 18. Jesus says in verse 18, for truly I say to you, unless heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Notice there's one word that Jesus says twice. It's the word pass away, or some of your translations may have disappear. Jesus is saying, first of all, that the Bible is true. And not only is Jesus saying that the Bible is true, that's the principle that Jesus is laying down for us in verse 18, but not only is the Bible true, that the Bible is inspired by God. What do I mean by that? We'll look at verse 18 again with me. It says that heaven and earth will pass away before God's word does. So if something stands, even though nature falls, what do you call that? You call that supernatural. The Bible is not a natural book. It says that it stands even though heaven and earth will pass away. That is what theologians call the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that it's God-breathed, which means it's not man-made. That God stands and his word stands, though all of heaven and earth will pass away. So the Bible is true, Jesus says. Don't get mad at me, this is what Jesus says. And the Bible is inspired. Heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word will not. But not only does it say that it's inspired, but it also says, Jesus says, that he believes in what's called plenary inspiration. Now, plenary is a big 50-cent word that theologians use because it means that every bit of Scripture, the whole of Scripture, plenary just means unqualified or whole. All of Scripture, notice what Jesus says. Jesus says that I tell you not a, an iota, not a dot will pass from the law. The, the smallest letter in Greek is an iota. It's a little I. And... The, the old King James used to say what? A jot or a tittle? You know what a tittle is? A tittle is the little dot above the I. Know that? There you go, that's for a Jeopardy question for you. But Jesus here says not an iota or in Hebrew, the smallest Hebrew letter is a yod. It's just a little comma. Not an iota or a comma. Not a dot. The word dot in Greek is korea. It's, it's, the, it's the word for seraph. You know, those of you who are in design, you know what a serif font is, right? A serif font is, is just a little hook on the end of block texts. Or it's the thing that makes a capital Q a Q instead of a capital O. It's the thing that makes a G a G instead of a Q. A little serif. And Jesus is saying, look, not even that, not even the dot of Holy Scripture will pass away. 
Jesus is saying not only is Scripture eternal, not only is it divine, not only will it last, even though heaven and earth will pass away, but Jesus is saying all of it will last, every bit of it. And not only will every bit of it last, but Jesus also says, look, this is all in verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, right, there's the inspiration, not an iota, not a dot, that's plenary inspiration, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, by the word law, Jesus isn't just referring to the first five books of the Old Testament. Jesus is referring to all of the Old Testament, every bit of it. In John 10, for example, Jesus quotes Psalm 82. And when he quotes Psalm 82, that, it's, a, it's a poem, right? It's not legal. It's not part of the, old, the first five books of the Old Testament. It's poetic. But yet Jesus says, it is written in your law. And then he quotes a psalm. Jesus here is using the word law not for the first five books of the Old Testament, but for the entirety of Holy Scripture, which for Jesus was the Old Testament. Every bit of it is inspired by God. And not only that, but Jesus himself believes in the plenary inspiration of Scripture. Now, that's not all. Thirdly, it says, until it all is accomplished. Until it all is accomplished. Jesus believes that the Bible has authority. He believes that the Bible is to be obeyed because none of it will pass away until it's all accomplished. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that the secret things of the Lord remain with the Lord, but he gives us his word to be obeyed. So the first thing you learn from this text is that Jesus himself thinks the Bible is true and he thinks it's true in three ways. That it's inspired. Not only is it inspired, but he believes in the plenary inspiration of Holy Scripture. And not only that, but he believes in the authority of Scripture. And this is important because a lot of you will think, well, listen, a lot of you have friends that think this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like I believe the Bible, but dude... There are parts of the Bible that I just can't buy. Okay. Which part? Because Jesus himself seems to believe that that part is inspired too. But you're saying, well, no, 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 no. Like, like the Old Testament, like, like we just, we're New Testament people. Like the Old Testament, that part is like, that's just, it's weird. You got people dying. You got weird laws. Okay. Okay. Do you know what Jesus is talking about when he says that the law will not pass away? We didn't have the New Testament when Jesus said that. Jesus is talking about those ugly parts of the Bible that you have a hard time with. And he's saying that that is true. And so if Jesus believes it's true, If Jesus says the Bible is true, it's inspired, it has plenary inspiration, and it's fully authoritative for life, listen, who are you to disagree? Okay, I know you're smart. You're not smarter than Jesus. Do you believe that? A lot of people around town have a hard time with the Old Testament. But here, Jesus very clearly says that all the Old Testament is true. Every single bit of it And friends, that's incredibly important. Well, some people will say, well, yeah, but the Bible was like, it was like, um, it was put together by human beings. That's true. 
It was. Who put the 39 books of the Old Testament together? The Jews did. Not only that, but by the time that Jesus is preaching, you know that for hundreds of years, the Jews had codified the 39 books that they believed were inspired, were inspired with accuracy down to the jot and the tittle, and were fully authoritative. So what Jesus says this, friends, he's not just saying that he believes that the Bible is true, and yeah, yeah, maybe a human being screwed it up. No, Jesus is saying that the entire book of the law is true, and not an iota, not a dot will pass from it. Jesus is saying not only is the Old Testament true, but the entire process by which the Old Testament came to be is also authoritative. Do you see that? That's called the, the canonization of Scripture. I don't, when I say the word canon, I don't mean like boom, boom, weapon of war. I mean like a reed or a measuring stick. That Jesus is saying here, this is quite interesting and profound if you, if you hear what he's saying. Jesus is saying that not only is the Old Testament true, but Jesus is actually commendating the, the process by which the Old Testament came to be. So when your friends say to you, well, listen, the Old Testament, it was put together by a bunch of guys, you know, they were, you know, I don't know, they were, they were just put, they were drinking whiskey, smoking cigars, and just put the Bible together. That's not actually true. And even if they were, Jesus says that what they did was right. Do you believe that? It's very important that you believe it. Jesus believed the Bible so much that you could cut him and he bled scripture. He believed it. It was authoritative in his life. Think about when Jesus was tempted. What did Jesus do? Whenever he was tempted by Satan, immediately Jesus says, it is written. Or whenever the Pharisees came to attack him, Jesus would say, it is written. Do you do, you do that? Do I do that? Do we know God's word so much that we actually base our lives on it to be the authoritative guide for our life? Listen, on what do you base your life for your real authority? We assume that it's the Bible in places like Oklahoma, but is it really? Have you really allowed God's word to shape you and mold you as Jesus intends for it to mold and shape you? Because Jesus doesn't just tell us what the Bible is, that it's true, that it's inspired, that it has plenary inspiration, that it's authoritative, but Jesus shows us what the Bible is about. And friends, we can know that the Bible is true. We can have good theology about the Bible. Bibliology is what theologians call that. But if we read this portion of the Sermon on the Mount and we skip over verse 17 and we just go to verse 18 and we begin to talk about our knowledge of the Bible and we miss what Jesus says in verse 17, you will know how to read the Bible like a perfectly good Pharisee because verse 17 tells us what the Bible is about. Verse 18 tells you what it is. Verse 17 tells you what it's about. And what does he say? Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The principle here is this, that not only is the Bible true, but the second principle that you see is that the Bible is about Jesus. All of it is about Jesus. The Old Testament is about Jesus. That's what Jesus says. I have not come to abolish the Old Testament, the law. I have come to fulfill them. How did Jesus fulfill them? 
Well, you begin to see that the old ceremonies in the Old Testament that we get caught up on, you know, like what kind of clothing can you wear? What kind of shrimp could the Jews not eat, right? Jesus says, look, the clean laws existed, but they don't exist anymore because I was the perfectly clean one. And all of those sacrifices that the Jews used to do at the temple, they used to sacrifice all of those animals, but you no longer need sacrifices. Why? Because I am the final sacrifice. I'm the last sacrifice that paid for all of your sins. There is no more need for the shedding of blood. It's interesting. When, when Jesus is talking in the transfiguration in uh, Matthew 17, and he's talking with Moses, and they're having a conversation, Moses and Elijah and Jesus. Do you know what Jesus, it says Luke, in Luke 9, 31, I think, says that they're talking about, uh, they're having a conversation, Jesus and Moses. I would have loved to have heard what they're talking about. But we know a little bit about it because Jesus is talking with Moses about his departure from Jerusalem. You know the word that he uses there is the word exodus. So Jesus and Moses are having a conversation and they're talking about their own exoduses, exodi, whatever. Like Jesus is saying to Moses, Moses, like you led your people across the Red Sea out of Pharaoh's grasp. I lead my people across the sea of death and sin so that they are not swallowed up in God's wrath, but they're freed from it. My exodus is at hand, Moses, because your exodus only pointed to the greater you, me, Jesus says. Because there's a Moses and then there's a greater Moses. You see this all through scripture. And when you begin to read the Bible like that, friends, it opens your eyes to a completely new world of how to understand the Old Testament. Because no longer, no longer will you read the Old Testament the same way that you used to read it. And at the same time, on the other hand, you can't ignore it anymore either. So on the one hand, you won't read it like you used to. When you read the Old Testament, you just fear this incredible weight of guilt, all these laws. How do you even understand these or obey them? They put you to sleep. But on the other hand, you can't ignore it because now you know that they all speak about Jesus. And when you begin to read the Bible that way, it changes everything about the way you understand the gospel. Because the gospel is the good news that Jesus fulfilled everything in the Old Testament for you and for me. And that every part of it will be completely fulfilled by him. The word that Jesus uses here when he says that I came not to abolish them but to fulfill them is the word, the Greek word that just means to fill. Like you know, like if you have a glass and in the glass is some water, you filled the glass. But what if I were to bring to you to dinner an empty glass? What is that? Is that, is that useful? No, it's not useful at all. I need something in it. But what if I brought you water that had no glass? What do you, what do, you do with that? You can't hold on to it. That's the way that Scripture and Jesus come together. The Old Testament is like the glass, and Jesus is like the liquid in the glass. The glass by itself is of no use to you because you're dying of thirst. The liquid is what you need. You need Jesus' refreshment. You need the good words of his love for you and of his sacrifice for your sins. But at the same time, you can't just take water and try to hold it in your hands. It will slip through your fingers. You need the glass. You need the word and you need the liquid. You need Jesus. They go together. Does that make sense? 
in my own life, the most amazing realization of this was when I was in seminary at Dallas Seminary, and my professors um, taught, essentially taught me to preach and, and with three steps. One, what does the command say? Two, do that command. And three, God will bless you for your obedience to that command. Have you heard that before? One, here's a command, go do it. Two, go do it. Three, God will bless you because of that. And, and I remember going to a Reform University Fellowship meeting when I was in seminary. It was at Southern Methodist University. And a friend of mine named David Ray preached a sermon called, You're Not David. From 1 Samuel 17 that Stephanie read earlier. And the point of the sermon was, you are not David. Because my whole life, I had read 1 Samuel 17 and thought, I am David. And I just need to get up the courage to go and slay my giant. If I've got an event I need to do well in, I, I just go slay it. I, I can, you know, all things are possible. I just need to believe it. And over time, when I was really honest, it, it wore me out. And David... Ray, my friend, preached this sermon called You're Not David. And he said, listen, you are not David in this passage. And some event in your life or some obstacle in your life is not Goliath. Jesus is David, and the obstacle that Jesus is defeating is sin and death, something that you cannot slay. Do you know who you are in Scripture? And this is when I really just melted. You're the cowardly Israelite huddled beneath your shield, shaking in your boots because you do not have the courage to go and face your Goliath because you can't. And when David preached that sermon, you're not David, like scales fell from my eyes. And I began for the first time to realize the Old Testament was not about a bunch of rules of how to obey God. It was actually a beautiful story, one story, all of which was a foreshadowing of the work of Jesus Christ. And when you begin to understand the Old Testament that way, it actually makes you yearn for it. It makes you thirst for it. It makes you want to go reread it. There is a book that helps you do that that I want to commend to all of you. It's written by a woman whose name is Sally Lloyd-Jones, and there are several copies over there on the resource table. You can look over there. It's okay and see those books that are standing up. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And if you want to learn how to do this better and better and better, that book is a tremendous resource to begin to help you learn how to read the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. Because Jesus says that not only is the Bible true, it's inspired, it's not only inspired, but every word of it's inspired, plenary inspiration. It's fully authoritative, but that the Bible is about him, not you. Because if you believe the Bible is about you, then you will read the Bible like a Pharisee. And you will think that these Old Testament commands are for you to just go run off and obey, and when you do obey them, God will love you more. Friends, that is exhausting. And that is not what Scripture teaches. And when we say we want you to rest in worship at our church, we mean that we want you to rest, to not walk out of here with 14 things to how to be a better dad or mom or person or teacher or whatever, because that just burdens you. Instead, you know what our sermons are about? They're really not three points, they're four points. And if you listen to the sermons enough here, 
You hear the same four points almost every week. This is what God is calling you to do, but broken by sin, you cannot do it. But there is one who has done it and who can do it. Jesus who loves you. And to the degree that you rest in his righteousness for you, you can then go and do it. Do you see the tremendous difference between those two approaches? That is why we were planting a church in Owasso, a church that seems so, I mean, a place that seems so overchurched, but it's very under gospel because we are just teaching people to go and be, follow Jesus' moral example. That will do nothing for you to earn your salvation except wear you out. But if you see the commands are about what you should do, and you should do them, but about how you can't do them, but Jesus has done them. And as you hide yourself in him and you trust not in your own righteousness but in Jesus' righteousness, then you can do them, which is our third point. The life that results is actually a life that is more joy-filled. It is not fear-filled. It's more joy-filled. Why? Because Jesus has accomplished all of this. And if you say, Listen, Jesus said in, in Matthew 6, he says, the Pharisees pray like this so they can be seen. But I tell you, you should pray like this. The Pharisees give their money away like this, but I tell you, you should give your money away like this. What is he doing? He's saying that the Pharisees live from the outside in. They live on the outside because inside they are deeply fearful and insecure people. Are they religious? Yes, you can't get any more religious than a Pharisee. But inside they are deeply secure because they know not their Father's love for them. But Christians, Jesus is saying, live the inside out. That because they are so loved by their Father in heaven, they can then move out and obey Him and be bold and take risks and invite their neighbors over for dinner. And they can do what Christ calls us to do, not out of a fear of His rejection of us, but by the smiling gaze that He gives to us. He loves you. Do you obey God for that reason? Listen, if you believe that God loves you more when you are obedient to him, you may not be a Christian. Because the essence of faith in Jesus Christ is resting in his work alone for you. And listen, you don't have to believe that the Bible is inspired by God to be a Christian. No, no, you don't have to believe. You just have to believe that you have no righteousness of your own, that Jesus is your only righteousness. But Jesus does teach the inspiration of Scripture. And believing the doctrine doesn't make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that God required that I could not do. And he loves you. So friends, when you read the Sermon on the Mount, and as we study it, notice that Jesus in these verses in 17 through 20 sets up everything else that's about to come because Jesus says in verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus is saying is that you begin to live inside out, not outside in that you are resting in Jesus' righteousness. There's only one person whose righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. They had 613 
chores that they did and they did all of them as well as they can. And they had not only 613 laws that they distilled from the Old Testament, but they had thousands of laws around those 613 to protect them from being in environments where they might break one of those 613. They are more religious than you are, but they didn't know the gospel. And you can be more righteous than the Pharisees when you rest your righteousness in Jesus. And the rest of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount is taking the Pharisees to the woodshed and saying, you have heard it said this way, but I tell you the truth, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Old Testament, you can't inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus is not merely saying become a better person. Jesus is saying it is impossible to be a good person unless you first rest your life on my finished work and you see that on the cross. Jesus going to the cross quoted scripture. Psalm 31, five. Father, into my hands I commit my spirit. On the cross, Jesus spoke scripture, Psalm 22. When he was going down to the cross, literally descending to Gehenna, Jesus quoted Hosea to the women. He oozed scripture, do you? And if you ooze scripture, we want you to ooze it because you have your father's love. We don't want you to ooze it because you believe that by memorizing scripture, God will love you more. You should memorize it. You should cherish it. You should love it because Jesus has as high a view of the Bible as you could possibly have, do you? And how do you do that? How do you have as high a view of the Bible as Jesus does? And how do you begin to see Jesus in the Old Testament? It's the same way you figure out how to get to Tulsa when the Bird Creek Bridge is out. You practice, practice, practice. Like you go down 76 to Mingo, you hook a left, you go south. Like it's gonna take practice for us to figure out how to get to Tulsa when 169 is shut down. You practice, do you? Do you spend time in his word? Do you love it like Jesus loved it? It will reshape everything about your life. What oozes out of you when you're in stress and when you're in trial? Hmm? That's your scripture. And we want it to be the good news that you are more broken and sinful than you could ever dare imagine, but you are also in Jesus more loved and accepted than you can ever dare to dream at the very same time. Isn't that good news? Let's practice that together as you prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will help us as your people to believe as you do about your holy word. And Lord, we admit that we lean on our own knowledge of theology to be our righteousness. And Lord, even our repentance needs to sometimes be for good things that have become the best thing. Help us, Lord Christ, to see that you are our righteousness and that you love us and that your word is true. Though every man be proved a liar, as Paul says, your word is true. Every bit of it. And it's authoritative and it's all about you 
And the life that results is a life not of fear, but of joy and of gladness. Lord, let this be true of us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.